It's the Victorian Variety Show. That fear is not the only motive which operates in producing self-restraint in the minds of maniacs is evident from its being often exercised in the presence of strangers who are merely passing through the house and which, I presume, can only be accounted for from that desire of esteem which has been stated to be a powerful motive to conduct. It is probably from encouraging the action of this principle that so much advantage has been found in this institution, from treating the patient as much in the manner of a rational being as the state of his mind will possibly allow. The superintendent is particularly attentive to this point in his conversation with the patients. He introduces such topics as he knows will most interest them, and which, at the same time, allows them to display their knowledge to the greatest advantage. If the patient is an agriculturalist, he asks him questions relative to his art and frequently consults him upon any occasion in which his knowledge may be useful. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I talk about topics that you might not have heard your teachers talk about so much when you studied the Victorian era in school. Or if they did, it may not have been a topic they discussed in great detail. Maybe you read poems or novels that were written during this time, and your teachers gave you just enough information so you'd have a better idea of the context in which the work took place. And you've come here because, hopefully, you'd like to learn more. If that's the case, I'm happy to oblige. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is from Chapter 5 of Samuel Tuke's 1813 work, Description of the Retreat. Although Tuke's work predated the Victorian era by almost 25 years, I decided to open this episode with it because the ideas of Samuel Tuke as well as those of his grandfather, William Tuke, who founded the York Retreat in the late 18th century, were instrumental in changing attitudes toward mental health in the Victorian era, at least to the extent that it influenced the approach toward housing patients that was taken by a number of asylums that operated during the Victorian era. Before I go any further, however, I want to clarify two points. The first is that because I found an abundance of useful information in putting this episode together, and because there's a lot I want to touch on as a result, I am going to focus on Victorian era asylums in the UK in this episode. And in my next episode, in two weeks, I'm planning to look at what was going on in asylums in the US during this time. And the second point is that I will be using terms such as quote-unquote maniac, lunatic, and such only in quoted material, or if a piece of legislation or an institution that I'm mentioning includes one of these terms in their name, or if they were commonly referred to in that way during the Victorian era. An example of this would be Broadmoor Hospital in Crowthorne, Berkshire, England, which was known as 
Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum from 1863 to 1948. I do believe it's important to include this terminology in limited instances for purposes of historical accuracy. But because, despite the efforts of reformers like the Tukes, unfortunately, mental illness continues to be stigmatized to this day. I find these terms problematic, and I feel they're used too casually, often by people who are unaware of the baggage that this type of terminology often brings with it. The practice of institutionalizing people with mental health issues was going on in England for several centuries prior to the Victorian era. Bethlehem Royal Hospital, commonly referred to as Bedlam, which was established in South London in 1247 as a center to collect alms in support of the Crusader Church, started accepting patients with mental health conditions in the early 1400s. And as Joe Mander points out in A History of Mental Asylums, Bethlehem is considered the first institution in Europe to specialize in psychiatric care. It's also infamous for, among other things, allowing the public to watch the patients for entertainment purposes for a fee. However, those who received quote-unquote care many of whom were people with learning disabilities or women who were considered promiscuous, were largely considered morally deficient and treated as basically subhuman. They were often kept in cages or restraints like chains at all times and were forced to sleep on cold floors and only received enough food and clothing to survive. VictorianEra.org explains that doctors prior to Victorian times basically had little to no knowledge of mental illnesses as well as other conditions, and that furthermore, they were often too willing to categorize anything that differed from the quote-unquote norm as evidence of mental illnesses. Most theories around this time trace these conditions essentially to illnesses of the soul. However, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, attitudes toward quote-unquote mental illnesses began to shift, thanks to the aforementioned Tukes in England and in France, the physician Philippe Pinel, from a model of moral failure to one of a condition that could be made less severe or cured, and the need to care for and better understand patients in institutions started to gain traction. At the same time, the notion of who should be responsible for institutions attending to patients with mental illnesses began to evolve. So asylums, which previously had ties to religious entities, such as Bethlehem, or were privately run, became primarily the state's responsibility. According to Mander, under the County Asylums Act of 1808, Magistrates were given the authority to build asylums that were partially funded by the state in every county in England, and committees were created by Parliament to investigate the abuse that was taking place in private institutions. Much of the focus was on the restraints that were used and the squalid living conditions of the patients. So, in 1828, a so-called lunacy commission was created to license and supervise private asylums. The 1808 and 1828 legislation set the stage for further legislation in the Victorian era. 
such as the Asylums Act of 1845, under which each county needed to have an asylum for paupers with mental illnesses, and the Lunatic Asylums Act of 1853, or, if you want to be more technical, an act to consolidate and amend the laws for the provision and regulation of lunatic asylums for counties and boroughs and for the maintenance and care of pauper lunatics in England. Well, that's a mouthful. According to an article on the Masked AMHP blog called A Stroll Down Memory Lane, the Lunatic Asylums Act 1853, the origins of contemporary British legislation regarding mental health can be detected in the 1853 Act, which laid down provisions for the welfare not only of paupers, but also private patients, which is noteworthy because according to AMHP, quote unquote, pauper lunatics were clearly distinguished from others during the Victorian era. Some of the takeaways for me from the 1853 Act were the committees of visitors who were established to build and maintain asylums and to monitor their patients' welfare, the requirements for detaining paupers, which required an order from a justice, a clergyman, or some other type of official, as well as a medical certificate signed by a physician, surgeon, or apothecary, as opposed to private patients, who needed a medical certificate signed by two physicians, surgeons, or apothecaries, and rules by which patients could be released. According to AMHP, the act did not include a provision for a patient, either pauper or private, to appeal a detention, but a friend or relative could apply to have the patient discharged as long as the patient, quote, shall be properly taken care of and shall be prevented from doing injury to himself or others, end quote. The act also set guidelines for the cost of maintaining patients for each committee of visitors. In the case of paupers, this sum could be no more than 14 shillings per week. So the impression I get is that even though this act seems to have dealt with the treatment of paupers in the most humane way up to that point, you might say, there were still some strict guidelines in place for just how much their care could cost. Also, as V.L. McBeath points out in Victorian-era lunatic asylums, although the 1853 Act seems to have been passed with good intentions, many asylums were, quote, a convenient way to remove the poor and incurable from society. And, for those with money, private madhouses were often convenient dumping grounds for unwanted wives, end quote. Along with legislation of the period, many asylums constructed in the early 19th century were designed with good intentions of providing a beneficial environment for patients to recover. An article on the Historic England site called The Growth of the Asylum, A Parallel World, describes many of these asylums as quote-unquote self-contained worlds, predominantly in rural areas, that, quote, were designed by some of the finest landscape gardeners. They contain farms, orchards, workshops, bowling greens, croquet lawns, and cricket pitches. 
leading off the words were airing courts, walled gardens with shelters where patients could safely exercise, end quote. Some of these facilities also included their own churches and chapels, entertainment halls, and even railway stations, such as the five asylums in Surrey that were known as the quote-unquote Epsom Cluster. So these facilities not only gave patients opportunities to entertain themselves and attend their spiritual needs, but facilities such as the Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum at Hanwell, which first opened in 1832, allowed patients to attain some level of self-sufficiency by working on a farm, in a bakery or brewery, and growing their own food. As an article on the Science Museum website called A Victorian Mental Asylum suggests, Hanwell was noted practically from the start for its quote-unquote progressive approach, which held that so-called therapeutic employment was an important part of its patient's recovery process and implemented a non-restraint policy, which, in the absence of restraints, increased the responsibilities of nurses and staff. When compared to Bethlehem and other asylums of old, Victorian-era county asylums probably sounded a bit like paradise. Men and women were normally separated, which should come as no surprise, this being the Victorian era. But as McBeath points out, one result of this was that men were usually assigned tasks in the bakery, the brewery, or outdoors, in the farm or in the garden, while women were usually tasked with what you might call indoor responsibilities like laundry and sewing. Men also had opportunities to play team sports in their leisure time, while women's outdoor activities were more along the lines of walking around the property. As a result, as Jade Shepard explains in Treating Mental Illness in Victorian Britain, both male and female patients often found a sense of community with other patients in asylums, to the extent that some patients, such as George Longmore, readmitted himself to the aforementioned Broadmoor several years after he was released from there, telling his brother in a letter basically that the asylum would be a more comfortable environment for him than the outside world. Also, as far as the non-restraint policies that were becoming popular in asylums in the mid-19th century, I think it's great that the straitjackets and bed straps disappeared for a while. But because attendants now had to keep a constant eye on patients and be prepared to intervene before patients could harm themselves or others, I do think that there might have been more potential for abuse at the hands of the attendants who were given increased responsibilities. The end of physical restraints also brought about the use of padded cells, where violent or suicidal patients were placed so they couldn't harm themselves. It was believed that this type of isolation, which was usually temporary, could calm people down. But it's also possible that isolation could also make the situation worse for certain patients. At any rate, later on in the Victorian era, it became more difficult for even the progressive English asylums to maintain their moral treatment methods, primarily because they were growing so overcrowded.
For example, Historic England estimates that the patient population inside the average English asylum grew from around 115 patients in 1806 to over 1,000 by 1900. As a result, new asylums were constructed throughout the Victorian era, and new wings were being added to existing asylums. However, because there often weren't enough staff members to attend to the ever-increasing number of patients, restraints, which, following the lead of Hanwell, many British asylums phased out by the 1840s, started to make their way back into asylums. And eventually, even upkeep of many buildings became an issue. According to Science Museum, by the 1890s, a sense of gloominess and a lack of good ventilation could be found even at Hanwell, once the poster child for the Progressive County Asylum. And generally speaking, the sense of optimism that patients could be cured had vanished, due in part to the fact that patient populations were frequently growing. I am going to end this discussion of asylums in the UK during the Victorian era for now but I may revisit some of these themes in my next episode on asylums in the U.S. during this period, as well as in future episodes. For now, I'll close this out by saying that on the one hand, I think it's important to look at Victorian-era asylums in a broader historical context. A theme I discuss frequently on this podcast is that the Victorian era was a time when people were open to advancing their knowledge in many different areas and to trying new ways of doing things. And this was definitely true when it came to how patients were treated in asylums as well. However, I do think the way a number of these reforms were implemented left a lot of room for the so-called advancements to be abused. And also, I don't think the possibility that these asylums would become so overcrowded later on in the Victorian era was planned for by those in charge of building asylums and crafting legislation surrounding it. And unfortunately, I think many of these issues lingered long after the Victorian era ended. I also get the sense that even though many of the reformers had a genuine desire to treat patients with mental health issues in a more humane way than they'd been treated prior to that time, the fact that they were frequently referred to by names like idiot, imbecile, and other terms in addition to lunatics suggests that the reformers still saw those in need of mental help as others. So even though Victorian-era asylums in the UK can be considered an improvement over those that came before, they were still far from ideal. And now I want to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at at VictorianVariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at either www.buymeacoffee.com slash MarissaDF13. Or if you're listening to this show on Good Pods, you can leave me a tip now because I set up the tip jar functionality on my profile page on the Good Pods app.
And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening, because it'll help a lot more people find out about the show. Thank you so much for listening. And for those of you who've been sharing this show on social media, I am so, so grateful for all of your support. It really means a lot to me to see so much interest in the topics I cover on this podcast. I realize that these are difficult topics for many people. And the topic of this episode and my next is no exception. But I do think we need to discuss topics like these, because in many parts of the world, despite the lip service that the media and other institutions have given to the importance of treating mental health issues in recent years, the way mental health is treated today, I think, is still lacking. And I believe understanding how it's been approached and handled in the past can give us a better idea of how far we have and haven't come in the past hundred plus years. Again, although more attention is being paid to the derogatory terms that are often used to refer to people with mental health conditions, there are still far too many people who use these terms flippantly. And many of them probably don't realize what these words have meant throughout history, which is why I think we need to talk more about how things used to be. But on that note, I want to leave you with a quote from Jade Shepard that, I think, demonstrates why it's difficult to come at this topic from a particular standpoint and why we should be hesitant to think we've made great progress since the Victorian age. If you'd like to find out more, I'll include a link to this and all of the other sources that I consulted in putting this episode together in the show notes. We shouldn't forget that institutionalized care was massively flawed and that not all asylum patients made friends or adapted to being detained for an indefinite period of time away from their families and friends. Nor were all patients treated with dignity or cured. That said, the friendships formed within these institutions and the structured treatment regime were perceived positively by some patients and made a difference to their lives. Today, there are no such institutions to care for the mentally ill. They have been replaced with day centers, overstretched hospital wards, or prison cells. And, in some areas, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, delivered over the telephone. The treatment of mental illness simply isn't good enough.